Spartans, Nubians, Egyptians, Lydians, Indians, and a host of others join hands as one for the common good. Has there ever been such an era? And you want me to leave this world unfinished? If Feistian, there are other races who must join the Brotherhood. Welcome to Time Streams. I'm Nathan. And I'm Juliet. And in this episode, we talk about our first true lost story with Farewell Great Macedon. What's been going on for you, Juliet? Oh my gosh, craziness. I went up to upstate New York for the first time to hang out at my friend's wedding. Very unexpectedly. Very cool. Yep, they kidnapped me. They basically called me for my, my personal information and the next thing I knew I had a plane ticket in my email. Wow, well, I mean, that's nice if they pay for it and everything. I mean, I love my friends. I'm just like, you know, uh, that was short notice, but cool. At least work didn't catch fire while I was gone, so there's that. But sadly, the border is still closed, so I could, like, see Canada. I went to Alexandria Bay, I could look across the water, and there is Canada, and I can't even go visit. Aww. Never been to Canada. I wanted to go to Canada. Yeah, I've been to Toronto one time on a business trip, but that's all of Canada that I've really seen. And Toronto looks like any other city you've ever been to. So it's kind of like... Well, there yeah. was one really cool Doctor Who-related moment while I was there. Toby's been living up there because she's stationed up there at Fort Drum. And on a road from Watertown to Sackett's Harbor, she ran across an item that she had to take me to see after the wedding, after we got done with a, an early dinner, we drove out there and I shrieked because there in somebody's yard is a big old blue TARDIS. Yep, you sent me a picture. Yeah, Nick pulled the car over and we left out. We ran across someone's yard to take a picture in front of their TARDIS before they noticed us. Nice. I'm sure we can't be the only people. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was like, yeah, there are probably other people who have done that. <laughs> they probably don't mind too much. I mean, if you put a TARDIS in your yard, you're kind of inviting some attention. Right. But it was just extra cool. I was so excited to see that. So, But it was really good to hang out with them. I haven't seen them, of course, in over a year. And yeah, so that's, that's pretty much what's been going on with me. Work is the same. I'm still running. Yeah. I wish I could say that there was more interesting things. I, I bake a lot of bread now. I'm getting really good at making round white loaves on Sunday. I make like two of them every Sunday, and then there's fresh grilled cheeses that night for dinner. Very cool. That's a lot of people have done that. They've acquired new skills during quarantine, and I haven't. <laughs> well, it's, it's not just quarantine. It's the fact that my mother got me started watching. I finally broke down and started watching that Great British Baking show. Mm. She's got me some of the cookbooks from the show, and that's what I've been using to learn how to make things, which is kind of cool. I've enjoyed my creations for the most part. To be fair, I've discovered recently that all of Iron Chef, like the like the good Iron Chef, the Japanese one, like a lot of it is on YouTube, and so I have been watching those because I I miss that show. That is a show that always brings a smile to my face. <laughs> 
That's awesome. Yeah. How have you been doing? I've been, I mean, my back's been a problem again. Actually, because of there, there was a break in recording that I hopefully won't be as long in the break in releasing. People, I don't think that listen to this show don't know about my back problems because we we didn't record anything around February, March time frame um, this year. So that's true. I've been having back problems off and on, like really severe back problems, not being able to stand back problems uh, without assistance. And they are coming and going like but like it's like I'll do physical therapy and I'll take steroids and whatever and I'll get it better but then you're like flat on your back unable to move for days so yeah this is like the third iteration now that we're on of this and getting better again Uh uh-huh I finally broke down and I'm seeing a chiropractor I've only had bad experiences with chiropractors in the past but I'm like, at this point, at this point, I'm going to try anything because I just need this to stop. Okay. Okay. You know, I mean, whatever floats your boat. I can't do it. I can't, I can't do it. It's like acupuncture things I can't do. Yeah, no, I mean, believe me, I I get it because like I say, I've only had bad experiences with chiropractors. I've never had a positive one. This one though, at least for the two sessions that I've been to seems a lot better, even in her manner and her approach and everything to how she does it. So, so far, so good. I hope between all of this you're able to get a little bit more lasting relief you know like longer periods without the bad pain and when you do have the bad pain it's much shorter that's the hope so we'll see how all that goes but yeah otherwise i mean i feel like you're going through your back what i went what i go through with my migraines Mm. it just seems awful because you know you have some stretches where you're good and then when it's bad it's bad Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the crazy thing is ever since my surgery 13 years ago, I had a discectomy and I've actually been fine. And everybody's been like, oh, my God, nobody's fine after that surgery. And I'm like, I'm fine. I mean, occasional back pain, but no, nothing like exceptional or whatever. Like I have to lay down for an hour or something. And, you know, maybe every year once, you know, like it's like, oh, I've got to lay down because my back hurts. You know, I mean, nothing big. And yeah, it's just now it's like I'm making up for it. Oh, I feel empathy for you. My mom uh, sees pain management. She has Mm. two failed neck fusions and a herniated disc in her back. And she's very hesitant to ever go back and get that herniated disc taken care of simply because they have screwed up so badly on her neck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, she is often in uh, some pain. But we still do those 5Ks together. We just walk them instead. Mm. But it's bad. So I'm I'm at least familiar with some of the back pain issues. Yeah, I mean, it's my dad has back pain and back problems and stuff. It's just mine have been worse than what he had. But, you know, it doesn't help that we're getting older, man. (laughs) Well, it's funny because I was talking on the 42 cast the other day and I was talking about my back problems. And I was like, people listening to this are going to think I'm like 15, 20 years (laughs) older than I actually am. You know, I mean, yeah, we're getting older, but it's like, I'm not that old. (laughs) I make jokes about being, you know, 41 and oh, now it's over. You know, I'm over 40, you know, it's just ended now. But, you know, I don't really feel it. I don't know. I've been feeling that over 40 lately. No. Okay. Although I'm looking forward to next year. 42, man. I hit the special number. (laughs) Yep. That'll be the best. But otherwise, things are just, you know, kind of same old, same old. I mean, because like, I'm still, I'm still basically in quarantine. My work hasn't called us back yet. Uh, the last thing they said was after Labor Day, but they said they'd confirm it when we got closer. And that was like three months ago. And they still haven't confirmed it. So I don't know. Like, now that we're getting really close, I'm like, it's weird that they haven't said anything about it yet. But maybe that'll come tomorrow or something. I don't know. Okay. 
Yeah. So I'm still working from home. I'm still wearing masks every time I go out. Same here. And which isn't often, but you know, when I have to go to a doctor's appointment or to the store for something, you know, wear a mask. So, right. but anyway, anyway, let's get to talking about some Doctor Who. So what do you know about Alexander the Great? Is this going to be something where you're going to school me again? No, no. I mean, I know the, I know mostly around the controversy around his death, Mm -hmm. that he fell ill over a period of like two weeks and they're still not sure. Was he poisoned? Did he actually just fall ill? I mean, the man was under a crap load of stress and he did put his body through a lot. So it's not surprising if he just fell ill and died. Mm -hmm. But I know people like to believe he was poisoned, but we'll never really know. I mean, a lot of the things that are in this story are true but they've truncated them into like a small time frame and then sort of put a plot around it you know but yeah I mean it's I mean I know he achieved a lot really quickly I know he put off getting married and having kids and until he was older and thinking that you know I'm good now now I can enjoy it and then he died Mm -hmm. so yeah no he's an interesting interesting character in history because and that's why he's always kind of fascinated me is because of the idea of this was this guy that was like obviously very forward thinking I mean obviously Obviously very because like usually the idea was you conquer another nation, then they are your slaves. And he was very much not like that. He was like, no, we'll take what's best from their culture and we'll give them what's best from our culture. We'll create a fusion and we're we're all friends now. He was very forward thinking for his mm-hmm. time. But he was also someone who was brutal and could just like kill somebody because they made him mad or when his warfare would like just destroy every like if people resisted and didn't surrender to him, he would just completely like wipe them out. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you would hear about or what they record or what they say is he knew like the names of the rank and file soldiers and stuff and that was one of those things that like sort of inspired the loyalty that he got for them to go as far as they did because he just kept marching east all the way to India from Greece and it's like usually people wouldn't stand I mean eventually they they all did start saying no we don't want to go any further but I mean that's a really long way to go in a time when there were no vehicles you know <laughs> And there were a bunch of people on foot. So even though they had horses with them, it's not like you were going as fast as even a horse could ride either. It's true. That's 13 years of warfare as they just kept going east. But yeah, he inspired loyalty because of just how good he was with people generally. But then there would be those like fits of rage where he would just fly off. And so he's a very interesting character in history. And I really wish we could know more about him as a person and sort of the day to day. I actually just coincidentally heard somebody talk about him kind of offhand that was talking about something else about how she's convinced that he suffered from PTSD. I mean, that wouldn't be surprising. Right. And so, you know, and, and gave a lot of evidence about that. So that's why this is kind of an interesting uh, subject matter to me, because Alexander's always been someone who kind of fascinated me just on, a, on a, that level of he did so much. He was obviously really smart. He was obviously very intelligent and compassionate in some aspects, but then also was, you know, able to be like a complete and total barbarian. Right. At times. And the story behind uh, the creation of this is that um, Morris Fari, the author, um, you know, he had done Farewell Great Macedon, or, I'm sorry, uh, Fragile Yellow Arc of Fragrance is just a way of saying like, here's like a s- sample script. And based on that, they said, okay, we like this idea you have for an Alexander the Great story, write the first episode, and then just give us an outline for the other episodes. And then we'll, you know, decide whether to move forward or not. Uh, but what he did was he felt like so inspired, he says, that 
that over three nights, he just knocked out the whole thing. I mean, why not? When you're right. on the, the roll, you go with it. <laughs> right. Even though he wasn't paid for the other five episodes. He was writing for the enjoyment of it. Right. But uh, yeah, they asked for substantial rewrites. And he says that he just didn't feel like it was too much, basically, that they wanted to change. And he had felt so like emotionally invested in it that he didn't want to make the changes. And so he hasn't said what they asked for. And he might not even remember at this point. After, you know, listening to it, I have at least a few ideas of some things they probably would have wanted to change. But to be fair, he's writing this. He had seen up to Marco Polo in the show when he wrote this. So he didn't know all the things that were going to happen after that. So, yeah, I think that he was getting into areas that they didn't want to get into. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that in the in the story. So, yeah, I mean, let's let's get started um, with episode one. Oh, and so uh, this is the thing I, I forgot to tell you. Um, there are actually episode titles. If you have the hard CDs, they actually have them on the CDs. Okay. But you can also find them on the Big With Finish website. If you go to like the story, it'll have like the different episode titles. So, but episode one is called The Hanging Gardens. Okay. Yeah. It starts off with this weird scene where the TARDIS, like the TARDIS always does in the first season, it's running out of power and... (laughs) Just gonna roll my eyes as if you can hear that on the recording. Right. And then they hear music, and this is the most bizarre part is Susan wonders if they're in heaven. That's my first note on here. Why in the world would Susan think they were dead? Also, that leads me to wonder, do they have a religion where they believe in heaven? Now I'm curious, because that just led to that a whole can of worms right there. Right. I am really surprised, because I, I, I do know one thing they did cut from the actual script that um, Morris Fari did when they did the adaptation for audio, was that there's all there was also going to be a scene a little bit after this where they go into the TARDIS to like get taught how to speak ancient Greek. There was going to be like a machine that they would hook up to, and that would like like download ancient Greek into their heads and they oh, cut that but they didn't cut this thing about heaven and i'm like it's a weird thing to like leave in because susan's not that dumb nothing that we ever learn about the doctor and his people has me thinking that they believe in anything like heaven so right? uh. yeah but i do like the doctor's response which is they can't possibly be in heaven because he, he doesn't know the know way, the way. <laughs> yes that was a really good one. Yeah. Because then my next note is, does the doctor believe in God? Meh? I, and here's the problem. I think as someone who's writing in the 1960s and because the show hadn't really said like much about who the doctor and Susan are, I think the assumption was just the default assumption that they're white, they're Christian. You know, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> rolling my eyes again. But yeah, so they leave the TARDIS and um they're they're hearing this music more and they find out that it's because in this sort of garden area that they're in, there are strings connecting the plants. And those strings, when the air wind goes through, it causes vibrations that cause this sort of like melody, you know, that it sounds really nice. And so they're they're like, wow, this is like a paradise area, and they're kind of wondering where they are. Ian wonders if it's a film set. I mean, I can't blame him. That is a little fantastical. Yeah. Although I think that would have been a little better uh, if it was actually televised to be wondering, (laughs) are we on a set? Yes. Yes, you are. Very meta, Ian. (laughs) Yes. Let's see. So it's Ian then who eventually, like once they see the the wires that are connecting everything, because there's a poem that mentions them that he remembers and that this is probably the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Right. Just as they figure that out, they're hearing all these people yelling, the king is here, the king is here. And they look over and there are these like women running past, like the king is here. And Susan's like, oh, I'd like to see a king and just runs off. 
because why not? You know, we went from, <laughs> are we dead? Oh my God, hysterics. Oh, I want to see a king. <laughs> oh. And so, yeah, then they cut to four characters Seleucus, Glaucus, Iolus, and Antipater. These guys will show up a lot. <laughs> They're upset because they've been away from Macedonia for 13 years. And they want to get back and Alexander has no interest. Oh, and that's another thing. They don't bring this up in the story, but apparently Alexander wanted to move his capital from Macedonia to Babylon yeah, because it's more centrally located in the area that he had conquered. And so it was like, that would be a better place. It was well known as, as a big city at the time and everything. And, and that was something also that made his men very angry was it's like, wait, we're Macedonians. What are you doing? Yeah. I mean, it makes sense for him though, because I mean, that is the center of his little conquered area. But I did want to point out that I thought it was really cool. They gave some fantastic descriptions of these Macedonians. Mm -hmm. They went into some gorgeous detail in the writing, enough to where I could picture them without it feeling overdone. And I will say also that, again, this is a limited cast like they did with the Fragile Yellow Arc of Fragrance, but um, William Russell does a good job of like distinguishing the voices so it's clear who's talking to. And for a guy who was you know in his 80s when he's recording this, that's pretty good because a lot of times when you get older, it's a lot harder to do like a lot of vocal work and everything. Um, he's got good genes or something. <laughs> I was very impressed. Because <laughs> I mean, I think he's still acting a little bit. I know he was up into it like when he turned 90, he was still acting. And it's like, wow, you've got some energy, dude. <laughs> So they want to go back home, but they know that the army isn't going to desert him because of the loyalty and everything. So Antipater, Iolus, and Glaucus are very much with the idea of we got to kill him. And in fact, not just kill him, but because he's already come up with a succession line with three of his generals, we got to kill all of them too, or otherwise they'll just keep going on the same way. Well, I mean, if you're going to do it, you got to do it completely. Right. Yeah, don't don't do this halfway. But yeah, so they each have a coin that sort of lists them as part of the line of secession. But Antipater, because he was the one that actually asked the armorer to make the coins, made a fourth one for Seleucus. He's another one of the generals. I do want to point out when they talk about the medallions of succession, mm -hmm. there's a little metal coin sound in mm -hmm. the audio that I thought was a nice touch. Yeah. Big Finish is really good with sound effects and stuff like that to really give like a feeling for it. And I'm really glad now that you're hearing this one because this one's a bit more like Fragile Yellow Arc. It was a short story. It was kind of not very great and they didn't do a lot with it and this one again it's not full cast yet you haven't heard one of those but it is something that at least is they're putting more stuff into it to make it sound you know more like you're you're part of that world and you can hear the things going on but yeah but i mean this is the part though that i think is kind of dumb in the plot where they've come up with this plan it's like oh yeah and seleucus he'll become king and then he'll you know take us home and we, we can then bribe him for money because uh or uh, not bribe but you know extort him for money by basically threatening to tell everybody that he's part of this plot but Seleucus they didn't get his buy-in before doing this he's kind of like no you guys can go ahead kill everybody <laughs> I mean at least they admit they're doing it for money that's the main that's right. the reason they want to do this and they have some fantastic evil laughing going on too right <laughs> Like it's full on worthy of <laughs> mm -hmm. So now Ian, Barbara, Susan and the doctor have gotten up to the gates of the city of Babylon and they see that outside there are all these tents and that's where 
Alexander's army is because there's this idea that Babylon should be like a pure city and so you shouldn't have thoughts of war when you enter the city so Alexander is sort of like you know meditating or purifying himself or whatever you know to like sort of like divest himself of warrior's thoughts before he comes he's Alexander the Great good luck with that (laughs) so the doctor starts smelling oil and he comes up and he sees this priest who's got a Ian smelling the oil oh was it Ian smelling the the petrol okay but the doctor's the one that finds the source of the oil first and it's um he sees the priest who's got some lamb and he's rubbing the oil on the lamb and the doctor says that's not how you cook lamb like oh my goodness and it's basically like look you've got to do this and this to cook it properly like you know and this is part of some like ritual to foretell the future right and instead like the doctor's treating it like he's just cooking and the best part is it's not even a real ritual this dude is in on the plot right he's right he's gonna be doing fake omens and stuff yeah but yeah as the doctor uh, is talking this is iolus one of the conspirators that we mentioned before a spear is thrown and it lands between the doctor and ian And they turn and it's four men are coming. Oh, no, five men are coming towards them. One man with four others. And they're all in armor. They all have weapons. And the leader is a blonde man. Who is uber polite, by the way. Right, yes. (laughs) Oh, and what do you think of the actor that they had for Alexander? I really liked him. I thought he was well chosen for it. He always sounded very into it. He could switch between the moods that Alexander needed to swap between, you know, at the drop of a hat. So I was very appreciative of it. Yeah, that's John Dorney. He actually is one of the big writers at Big Finish, uh, but he's also an actor. And they said that one day, because they needed just an extra voice on one of the a- audios, he, they were like, hey, hey, John, why don't you just do this voice? And they said that he did it, and they liked it so much that they then said they did an impromptu audition for him to do Alexander right there. And so then they cast him, you know, to do the role in this. I think that's awesome. No, he's fantastic. Yeah, no, I really like him too. But yeah, he he basically, like, it's clear from the conversation that he doesn't believe a word of it, you know, like any of the foretelling and religious rituals and any of that. But he also knows, though, that sort of politically, you've got to kind of toe the line because there are a lot of his men that do believe in it. And so he can't just completely be like, nah, like, I'm not going to listen to any of this. Um, that comes up a few times uh, in the story. But yeah, my note on there was, I don't know who this guy is because I didn't know at that moment. But I was like, but I like him. He's hilarious. so yeah he thinks they like because they tell him like the doctor is trying to teach him how to cook and he just thinks that's the funniest thing ever but then iolus does like the oh great prophecy has come upon me kind of stuff and he says that there will be a four-headed tragedy if alexander doesn't leave babylon right away and alexander tells iolus to go tell apollo because he's a priest of apollo that they need rest And the doctor says, uh, yes, like, quite right. You know, tell this guy off and he should be locked up because, you know, he's crazy or whatever. But then Alexander completely changes. And so we're already getting one of those mood shifts and he's like, I will not tolerate any kind of insults to any of my people. But then Alexander says, hey, why don't you guys join me? I'd like to learn more about you. And he introduces his four generals that he had with him. And it's Clytus, Calanus, Ptolemy, and Hephaestus. And that's when Barbara realizes that this must be Alexander the Great. Right. And um, for the record, also, it's I know Alexander's married, but it sounded like he was trying to hit on Barbara and it sounded like Susan knew it. 
And Kalanis was also one of the names that I did know. So mm. yeah, Ptolemy is the one that I remember best because he's actually the ancestor of Cleopatra. Right. Yeah. So um, they go off and Iolus goes to Antipater and tells him that the king didn't listen. And but and then he also tells him that there's these four new people who have just shown up and the king seems to be listening to them. And so Antipater's like, wait, 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 this works out because we're planning four deaths and there are four new people that just showed up and we can start like blaming this on them. Oh, before that happened, wasn't there the mention of one of them that said Alexander the Great? And he thinks that's funny. But he's like, oh, they don't call me that yet. <laughs> right. I don't think people have called me that. And then was it just me hearing it or did one of our four people just absolutely blurt out and say something that indicated they were from the future like they're in conversation and they said something like yeah i think yeah i think one of them says something like oh you you're not called that yet or something like that when he's talking about like ellie because first he takes that as because back in you know in, in history like a lot of times you called someone like great it meant they were big and he's like, well, I'm not as large as all that. And they're like, no, it's great in a metaphorical sense. But that was a problem that happened a lot in the first season anyway, because they would talk about like being from the future and stuff with people. And they never seemed to really, they never seemed to be really cautious about it. But then the people were never like, whoa, you know, the future, tell me what's going to happen, which is what you would expect if somebody learns that they met somebody from the future. I mean, the doctors are like, we can't change the past. We can't alter anything, you know, And but no, we'll just go ahead and tell people we're from the future. It's fine. Mm -hmm. But yeah, nobody seems to notice anyway at this point that they said anything about being from the future or history or anything like that. No, it's cool. Just me. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, none of the characters in the story, you know, notice, seem to notice. So so there'll be some things that I skip because I'm just like talking about the plot type stuff. So yeah, feel free to bring me back to any of that stuff that's fun. But yeah, you mentioned that he's married. You know, Alexander is actually married twice because he had a wife in Macedonia Mm-hmm. And then he married a Persian princess, yes. uh, Roxanne. And so actually that was the issue is he basically had two heirs also, in addition to the generals who fought over. So that was all part of the, the, the stuff that happened after he died was that, you know, yeah, he had two kids, two kids with his two wives. Then all the, all the generals who felt like, Hey, I, I deserve this. So, so yeah, that was the end of the episode when Antipater is talking about uh, plotting the four murders and they'll blame it on the four strangers and episode two is called oh son my son and so they go with alexander to his tent he tells them the whole thing i I already mentioned about how well you know they've been at war and so he's got to sort of purify himself of thoughts of war before he enters babylon he talks about Clytus as his, he keeps calling him Father Clytus. And he's like, oh, is this your dad? And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, he's he's just such a great, you know, dad-like person. You know, he's like, he's good enough for tendant dads. Yeah, but Clytus says stuff like no female heart that ever spoke with sincerity. And I'm like, really, dude? Really? Oh, yeah. Clytus is definitely meant to be like the conservative, older, you know, kind of guy. You know, that's his sort of mindset. And so, yeah, he's like that. He doesn't agree with a lot of Alexander's policies, even though they personally have a friendship. And it's during this dinner or this conversation that, again, one of our four people mentions 
history doing something like actually says it mm-hmm. and everyone just ignores it yeah ian mentions that alexander's court isn't like any court he's ever heard of you know because it seems like everybody seems very free to do and say whatever they want to say and alexander says that yeah that's because everyone is free and uh, i'm lucky to have these great friends with me that we can be this open with each other but then he starts talking about like, I would love for you guys to tell me more about yourselves, but because of the you know the rules of hospitality, I can't ask you directly. And so Susan just introduces them to him and they tell him that they're travelers. Yeah. And so he asks, what are they searching for? And the doctor says, knowledge. Which of course is just going to be like, Alexander's going to be like, ooh. Yep. So he tells him like, look, Babylon's a great place for that. You know, it's one of the centers of learning in the, you know, in the world. And, you know, you should stay and go to Babylon with us. The next scene is Alexander is basically training with Seleucus. They're doing some sword fighting and Barbara and Susan are watching. But then it's like Seleucus changes from practicing to like actually going for it at once. It's like, oh, there's an opening. I'm going to stab him. Right? And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, everyone seems to clue into this except Alexander, who just basically puts his sword out so that if Seleucus charges him, he'll impale himself on the sword. And so that stops him from doing it. But it's like, Ptolemy is definitely suspicious because they say like Ptolemy is like watching it really closely and everything. And it's like, dude, with how obvious these people are, how is it that you haven't clued into <laughs> the fact that you should not trust them at all? But that humiliates Lucas and he leaves. And Alexander tells Barbara and Susan that his wife is coming and he really wants them to meet her. And... Barbara mentions something again. Again, this is them hinting at future stuff. And I can't remember exactly what she does say, but she says that she hopes this is Alexander's first visit to Babylon because he he went to Babylon once on the way out east Mm -hmm. and then he came back there, which is where he died. And I'm like, it's kind of clear, though, from the context of everything that Barbara should already know that this is his second trip. Yeah, yeah. Because it's it's like he already knows what's up here. He's there's not like he's trying to, like, take over Babylon or anything. It's like it's clearly he's just coming in for a visit. Meanwhile, the doctor and Ian are walking around the camp. Doctor's looking at different rocks and things. And basically, he's looking for more of the oil so that he can extract. They're calling it heavy hydrogen, which what it is, is it's like it's hydrogen with more uh, electrons than hydrogen normally has. I'm sorry, more neutrons than hydrogen normally has. And so I don't know why he's just looking at rocks and examining them. But I know that he still can't get Ian's name right, whether it's deliberately or not. (laughs) I like that. That was a nice touch. And then Antipater is talking with Glaucus and he tells him that Alexander and his men, that what they really ought to do is like not only kill them, but kill them in ways that'll like ruin their reputations and and just like completely dishonor them. Antipater really seems to be like the mustache twirling like villain, you know? I mean, he's even doing the perfect voice for it too. Right. Iolus comes in and says Seleucus still won't commit to anything. And Antipater's like, hey, once people start dropping, he'll join us. (laughs) 
so yeah, now the Feast of Dionysus is something that's that's about to happen. And so Alexander and Hephaestus are getting ready for that. Um, and Hephaestus kind of warning Alexander that, like, look, don't drink a lot, you know, at the party. You know how it goes when you drink. Bad stuff happens. I mean, at first you're all nice and you're extroverted and you're everybody's best friend. And then you're angry and then heads literally roll. Right. <laughs> But then, yeah, Aeolus, uh, oh, wait. Yeah, no, Aeolus comes in there and he basically like reiterates the whole thing of I gave this prophecy of the four omens and these four people, those are the four omens and there's going to be a catastrophe for each of them. And Alexander basically proves he doesn't need alcohol to be a real big jerk. Right, because he's just like, get out, get out. So he leaves. And so, yeah, now they're actually at the party and Clytus is basically doing like a war story bragging about how the Persians were running from them. And Alexander gets mad because he's like, hey, you shouldn't do that. They're our friends now, you know, like all that's behind us. Don't do that. And Clytus starts saying, like, look, you're wrong. You're either a slave or you're a master, basically. Like, the whole world can be divided into that. And you can't make everybody equal. Doesn't Clytus say that he's prone to prejudice because he's all heart? There was some line like that because Alexander calls him on it. And Clytus is like, well, I'm only prejudiced because I'm all heart. And I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, Ian's basically like, like, have you ever seen like a baby with chains? And Clytus is like, no. And he's like, well, then if everybody's born the same way, then how is it that they're divided into masters and slaves? And Alexander's on board with this train of thinking. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he praises Ian for that. And Calanus uh, agrees that the gods are fair, but it's men who try to become more equal than others. Yes. And so they're kind of like, Clytus is getting really mad that everybody's kind of like jumping on, you know, this and kind of opposing him on it. And Pephaestin and Ptolemy also agree with Ian, which, and I should point out again to show like, you know, Alexander and like how, you know, he was someone who championed equality um, with his generals, like Hephaestin and Clytus are uh, Macedonians, but Calanus is Indian and Ptolemy is African. Um, and so it's like they're showing like even among like Alexander's most trusted people, he had people of different ethnicities uh, as part of his group. Also, I commented at this point in my notes that I, I really like this performance of Alexander. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. Like, it is so charismatic and everything. It's everything you would want in Alexander. But then it's like, when he needs to be enraged, it's like, get out! You know, and you like, get that, like, performance of, you know, just, just angry. Yeah, so, like, Clytus wants to leave now. And he says that all, all of them are fools. And Alexander's like, stop it, that's enough. Then Alexander goes to make, like, his offering, and it's supposed to be, like, an offering to Dionysus where he pours out the wine, but he mentions Ammon and Ishtar all also, and then Clytus gets even more angry because those are quote unquote foreign gods. Oh yeah, don't mention other gods. <laughs> right, exactly. And he says that Alexander has hubris um, because he's basically challenging the gods and trying to make the gods all the same also. And Alexander keeps telling him like, shut up and sit down, you know, like stop. And he won't. And so then Alexander gets a spear and he's pointing it at Clytus. But like Clytus is still like, he just keeps going. Like It's like you would think he would finally be like, oh, maybe I should stop now. But no, he's, he's also really angry and keeps going. And Ptolemy and Hephaestus are getting involved and they're all trying to get like 
all right, guys, just settle down. And Clytus basically dares him to do it at one point, basically saying, like, I've saved your life so many times, there's no way you're going to do this. This is the part that I really wish that we could see this because I had a hard time imagining how this works. So like Ian's going to try to grab Clytus from behind and just kind of like pull him out of the way. Right. And Iolus, it says, is in the shadows and trips Ian. So I'm okay with that part. But then as Hephaestin comes up to Alexander and he's about to grab the spear, it says Iolus pushes Clytus somehow with no one noticing and then he falls on the spear, basically. The way I imagined it was that he kind of came out of the shadows real quick and tripped up Ian. And at the same time, in order to trip up Ian, he would have had to be really close to Clytus and probably just like elbowed him, shouldered him into the spear. Yeah, but it still seems like to me like someone should have seen that. Like, how do you push someone onto a spear? Because you can't just nudge. You got to really like... Everybody's focused on Alexander at that moment instead. Well, that's true. It is true. I, I, but I'm also imagining a big party with lots of people all around. You know, so again, I don't know. I just, I wondered about how that would work and how they would have shown that on the show. Right. And, and it's not a big deal. It's not a huge part of anything. But as one of the things that while I was listening to, it kind of took me out just because I was kind of like, how is that? Like, but the doctor sees what happens afterwards because the doctor notices Iolus going back and talking with Antipater and everybody. And he saw that he came from basically where Clytus had been. And so the doctor starts going, oh, you know, like he's realizing what's going on. So yeah, but then with Clytus basically dying, Alexander completely like breaks down and is upset about this. And then he's basically like, I'm just going to kill myself now because, you know, I've killed my friend. And here I'm just like, I don't think Alexander dies by suicide. Pretty sure it was poison or illness. So I'm not really worried. <laughs> about this chapter break but he needs to cut back on the drinking yes yes but yeah that's the end of the episode and that takes us into episode three a man must die mm. yeah ian and ptolemy together basically like grab the spear and get it away from alexander hephaestin ends up knocking him out because he's he's just like no i'm gonna have my spear i'm gonna kill myself and so they knock him out and the next day Ian's blaming himself because he's like, well, I stirred up this argument. Clytus would have just gone on to something else, but then I stirred this up and that caused the whole thing. The doctor's like, that was no accident. I almost totally pushed him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Barbara's like, can you prove it? And he's like, no. Of course so not. There's not much that they can do about that. But Ian leaves the tent because he's upset and Susan follows him out. There's a lot of Ian and Susan pairing in this that I thought was strange. I'm not sure if that's something where they rejig the script because those are the two people who are still with us. And so to give like the actual actors time as them as their prime characters to interact or if that was actually in the original script. But it just seemed weird because usually, you know, you pair Ian and Barbara up. Right. Because that's just what's natural. <laughs> All right. But um, so uh, the doctor wants to get back to the TARDIS, which is actually in the city because that's where they had come out from initially. But they're not sure how Alexander will react to that because he's kind of like taking them in as you're my friends. And so it's like, well, maybe he won't want us to go in before he does. And so Barbara goes to ask on there, but like the doctor kind of suggests it and she kind of subtly and she's kind of like, I know what you're doing, but yeah, I'll ask him. Mm-hmm. Barbara's awesome. So of course, you know, she's she the is. best one to send. 
She's my girl. Yep. But yeah, so then they cut to Antipater, who's annoyed that Aeolus killed Clytus that way and not because they had originally planned to like drown him in wine. Yeah. So it would look like he was just like a lush that fell into the barrel and died. <laughs> Which, sure, that would be embarrassing, but... <laughs> But he wants ignoble deaths. That's what he wants. He right. wants to embarrass these people even after death. Yeah, I mean, sure, that's embarrassing. But does it really matter? Like, I mean, he's still dead. To him. He still can't inherit it the throne. It matters to him. I guess. But yeah, so this is something that I wasn't really aware of. I had never heard of this before, but not only did they kind of hold like athletic contests for the Olympics, you know, they actually did it for funerals also. I probably, I'm guessing for just for major people, but because Clytus is dead, they're having what they call funeral games where sort of people like do these contests in the honor of the person who has, uh, who has passed. Yes. So Susan and Ian are watching that and Kalanis comes up and Ian basically tells him that he feels sorry for, you know, what he's done. And Kalanis basically tells him, look, if, if it's arguing with Clytus that was the cause of his death, then we're all responsible because they all joined in on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he's like, look, it, it was an accident. So don't feel bad about this or don't take the blame on yourself. Not don't feel bad, but like don't feel personally responsible for it. Right. Right. Then we cut back to the conspirators and Seleucus, uh, you know, Antipater's still asking Seleucus to join them, but he's still kind of iffy on the whole thing. And he, Antipater shows him this rose and he says that this is what's going to kill Kalanis. Poisoned roses. Yep. So then we're with Alexander and Hephaestion in his tent and uh, he hasn't slept. He's got red rimmed eyes. You know, he's obviously been crying and upset throughout the night. Probably doesn't help he was hungover. Oh, it could also be hungover also, but I'm also assuming that he's he's been crying and everything else because, you know, there's a lot of grief associated with that, so... But Barbara comes in and then Alexander first gets like, gets in his mad mode with Barbara. It's like, get out. Why are you interrupting me? I'm in mourning. And he tells her that everyone is going to mourn Clytus, even if he has to force them to. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Barbara's asking like, hey, can, can we go to Babylon? It's not for fun. The doctor needs to do his scientific work and that, you know, we can't stop that just for death. There, there would never be anything going on in the world if we had to stop everything we were doing just because somebody died. And so mm-hmm. that, that argument actually, okay, I understand. You're not going to like enjoy yourself. You're just doing work. And so you can do that. I, I did find it interesting because at first I was kind of weirded out by Alexander talking about scientists because we don't typically think of scientists in, you know, BC times. But the fact of the matter is like Alexander was actually taught by Aristotle. That is a true thing that happened. Mm-hmm. You know, and Aristotle was one of the people who developed what we commonly think of as the scientific method and, you know, sort of testing hypotheses and everything. So even if they wouldn't have called it science and called them scientists, the idea of science, you know, was part of something that he would be aware of. So since we're already translating ancient Greek into English anyway, you know, it's fair to just have us use a term like science and scientists to you know so the audience understands so i think it does you know it does work it is one of those things that weirded me out for a second i was like wait would alexander the great talk about scientists but i'm like ah, eh, it's close enough so. see i was totally cool with that it was susan and the doctor trying to talk about heaven and god that, that was where i was got, <laughs> got weirded out yeah i'm afraid um the other lost story that we have does one other thing uh that's sort of like that where again the assumption just seems to be that yeah of course the doctor and susan you know they're white so they're christians right <laughs> Just like... <laughs> so yeah Kalanis is in his tent 
And then Antipater comes to him with the rose that he had showed to Seleucus. And he's like, man, this is like the most awesomest rose ever. And I know that you're someone who appreciates the finer things. So I brought this rose for you to appreciate. (laughs) Yeah, this wasn't suspicious at all. (laughs) Antipater is totally sus right here. Right. And yeah, Antipater tells Calanus that it's the custom in Macedonia that when you're admiring a rose, you also feel the thorns uh, so that it's pleasure and pain together. That is the most crap line I've ever heard in my (laughs) life. And I cannot believe anybody believed it. (laughs) I didn't look that up to see if I could find any evidence for it. Maybe it's a real custom. I don't know. But yeah, it does seem kind of dumb, doesn't it? so dumb so Kalanis does it and he pricks his thumb or you know like you would expect and uh what he doesn't know is that it's been dipped in poison so he has now been poisoned but it's it's something that doesn't affect him right away so Antipater leaves there's no like obvious connection between him being there and this happening and Antipater tells Iolus that Kalanis will get sick in a few days and then about a week after that he'll die and he'll, he'll be basically in horrible pain the whole time. And that for a warrior, this is like an ignoble death to just die sick in your bed. You know, very much like a Klingon sort of thinking of like, you're <laughs> yeah, not Yeah, you're not going to go to Stovobor that way. Right, exactly. And he doesn't think that there's any kind of antidote to the poison. So yeah, he thinks that they're pretty much covered. Then we skip forward a few days and Alexander says the morning time for Clytus is over. And so he's expecting to go right into Babylon now because it's all been done. It's time to go into Babylon. But then Ptolemy comes into the tent and says, you got to come see Calanus right away. So then they go see Calanus and he tells them like that he's going to coming to the end of his journey. And then he closes his eyes. And Glaucus, who's one of the conspirators, is also like the camp doctor. And he's telling him, oh, there's nothing I can do for him. It's... Oh my gosh. There's no medicine. There's nothing. You know, I just looked at him for like 30 seconds, but you know, that's, it's enough for me to tell he's, he's done. Yep. That's it. Yep. It's cool. And then Alexander gets really mad and he says, you're going to save him or I can't be held responsible for what I'm going to do to you. You know, it's one of those things like, you know, when people get unreasonably angry at somebody and it's just like telling them to do the impossible. Of course, in this case, it's not. It's not the impossible. It's just Glaucus doesn't want to. Do, well, maybe to Glaucus it is, but yeah. So the doctor says, "Well, I'll ask the strangers to come, maybe because they've been all over the place. You know, they've traveled. They maybe they know something that can help." Right. And I always is like the dumbest guy, also because he's like jumping in and being like prophecy, woo! Like every time something bad happens, and while Alexander is like obviously emotionally worked up about it, and Alexander's like, "Get out!" You know. <laughs> Yeah, Iolus is a coward and an idiot. Right. Yeah, because at least Antipater has some brains. Um, <laughs> you know, like he's good about being sneaky about everything. But yeah, like Iolus is just, I'm just going to like push it in just a little more. Like, oh, it's the prophecy I talked about. This is what's happening. It's like, yeah, like now's not the time to talk to him about that. Yeah. But yeah, so the doctor comes in. Uh, he looks at the, uh, you know, with the symptoms and basically is like, it seems to him like anthrax poisoning, but he has no idea how that would have happened. And later on, they even talk like, I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit and say like, and he kind of reasons out other people should be getting sick if this was like a natural case of poisoning, because, you know, in a camp like that, people go to the same places and touch the same food and, you know, everything else. Right. 
So yeah, he's kind of suspicious of all of this anyway. But then, yeah, the doctor's talking about, well, we'll have to do a blood transfusion. Then that's the only way we'll be able to save him. And yeah, this is when we start to get into the, I'm pretty sure this is the stuff that they were like, you're going to have to rewrite this. Because I get that Morris Fari didn't see the Aztecs before he wrote this because it hadn't come out yet. But yeah. they just had a story about how you can't change history with the doctor being very adamant about not even trying. And now we have the doctor basically being like, let's use some futuristic technology to these people and like do a blood transfusion. It's fine. That was one of my actual notes was, didn't the doctor lecture Barbara about changing history back in the Aztec arc? And now he's going to save a dude who definitely dies in recorded history by self-immolation. It's recorded. Right. But no, it's cool. Also, there was a line about how uh, friendship outweighs all differences of opinion. Mm. I, I remember hearing that and thinking... Oh, yeah, no, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, there are some opinions that friendship is not going to outweigh. Yeah. I'm just saying. I it sounds that. good, though. It does. It sounds good. But, I mean, after this last year and a half, I can guarantee. They were simpler times when this was written. Simpler times, my foot. <laughs> So Antipater goes to Alexander and is basically like, oh, like this blood transfusion thing. It's he doesn't say unholy, but it's like one of those things of like, this is like some abomination practice of giving blood into somebody else. How could you allow this? And Alexander's basically like, um, I've got all these soldiers with me. You're shedding blood all the time. <laughs> You know, yeah. it's like if you're going to shed blood for like combat to like protect your your country and you know he's like why not do it to save a friend yeah giving away of blood is not proper and i'm sitting here as a blood donor going i am so screwed <laughs> also hot grape juice they they gave him hot grape ew who well they didn't have refrigerators back but then, they actually so the asked for it to be hot, hot. ew <laughs> at least room temperature and I like how yeah. they went into detail about planning to extract blood using feathers. Oh, that was yeah. kind of cool. Well, yeah. I mean, you got to explain, like, how do you do it when you don't have needles and, you know, everything that, you feathers know. Feathers are hollow. Yep. Yeah. And so Alexander basically says, like, since the, the thing that they're going to do, which is save Kalanis, is not evil. Like, he doesn't believe that it's evil to do it. But he says, like, and if it is, like, evil, then I'm going to do it anyway because I'm going to save my friend. Yeah. But then Kalanis is talking to Barbara and she says, like, hey, you know, the doctor's going to help you and you're going to get better. And he's like, will I get all better? Like, will I be perfectly healthy? And, and she, she has to admit, no, it's more than likely you're going to have some brain damage. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not cool with that. Yeah. And he wants to die while he still has some strength left and is still able to like do like things. He can still have some dignity basically while he dies. And so he tells Alexander, like, I don't want this. Build me a funeral pyre and I'll just, although to me, it's like, all right, I get, I mean, even though it's horrible, but I can get the idea of, you know, feeling like death is more, is less painful than life. And so that's the road you're going to take. But by burning to death? That's his thing. I'm just, I'm like, you choose like a horribly painful way to die. Not, hey, can you like really quickly, like just cut a, like an artery or something and I bleed out really quick. Because or, that's not a warrior's death. Well, okay. Even something like, because they had drugs and poisons and stuff back then that would put you to sleep you know so it's like yeah put me to sleep and then kill me you know? no no he wants to go out on his terms yeah definitely not an ignoble death if that's going to be the case no so they even start the funeral games just before he goes in even though he's not quite dead yet i'm not dead yet uh 
<laughs> reminds me of Monty Python. But then he like walks up to like the pyre or to the beer um, that has the pyre on it. He turns around, salutes everybody, and then he goes and into it and, and gets burned. Isn't it recorded that he told Alexander that he'd see him soon or he'd see him in Babylon or something like that? He said something that people didn't think anything about. Right. Didn't they have a riff on that in this that they would be re? Well, he says something like we'll be reunited yes, or something that, that like was that. It. Yeah. But yeah, he, he was recorded as actually saying that. Yeah. So, but the doctor is again really like, even though he didn't see Antipater give the flower, he saw the cut on Kalanis's finger. He's like, it's anthrax poisoning, which how in the world does he get that? And so he's really sus about that too. Because the doctor's sharp too. He's yeah. not smoking any weird, you know, random leaves at the moment. Right. But yeah, but like, they're all like, Alexander, stop this. Don't let Kalanis go. And Alexander doesn't even understand like why this is his wish. Like I would don't want it and I would do anything to save his life. But if it's his wish, I'm not a good friend if I don't let him do it. And so it's again, it's interesting because like the different, you know, mindset from like our own society where like there was the whole scandal. I don't know if you remember it in the 90s with Dr. Kevorkian. who was assisting, you know, elderly people to commit suicide and the whole idea of, you know, you can't allow somebody to do that. Like you can't allow somebody to take their own life. You can't assist them to do it. On that same tangent, I'm going to point out that one of my favorite authors, Terry Pratchett, the moment he knew that he had dementia, he started documenting everything because he didn't want to go out just feebly. He didn't want to completely lose his mind. He made it very clear in the UK that he was planning to, when it got to the right point, he was going to commit suicide because that he was going to go out on his terms while he could still think as himself Mm. and there was a huge documentary that followed all of it about it because he wanted that made he wanted it brought out and talked about Hmm. so yeah yeah i mean i get that there's also the the concern that you don't want people who are doing this because maybe some people's kids are like kind of forcing them into like the situation where it's like they get the assisted suicide because they just want their older relative out of the way so they can inherit their stuff and i i get there are some concerns about that about people taking advantage of people who might not be in like the best mental state or whatever but at the same time it's kind of like if somebody's in a lot of pain and it's not going to get better and they're already really old it's i i kind of get you know where they're coming from on that mm-hmm. then ian again this almost seems like drama just for drama's sake because uh they're protesting with alexander about you know letting kalanis die and then ian says what are you gonna do you're gonna just let the whole camp die and then alexander gets just you know that's justifiably alexander gets mad and he throws his spear at ian and that's the cliffhanger uh. Uh, for the episode <laughs> But then we go to episode four, which is the world lies dead at your feet. So just as the spear is flying towards Ian, Ptolemy puts his shield. Oh, no, no, Kalanis. It's still Kalanis. I'm sorry. I said that he already got burned to death, but that hasn't happened yet. I am so sorry. Kalanis is the one that puts his spear between Ian and Alexander and blocks the spear. And he's like, look, nobody should argue about this. This is a great day for me. I get to meet my maker and there shouldn't be any blood spilled over this. But yeah, and Ian and the doctor try to actually physically stop him but then alexander has his soldiers pull them away so that he can go up and that's when he does what i say he goes he looks at the games being held he salutes them and he goes and he dies now it's the nighttime, and this is where barbara has her big talk with hephaestus about history and this is where it's really odd like before there were some little comments about history and about the future and stuff but like here she's like talking to hephaestus about history and she's getting too emotionally involved in history and i'm like why would you tell a person in history 
<laughs> you're too emotionally involved in it like this is a conversation you should have with ian or the doctor not with hephaestin oh I, it just hurts that yeah. part hurts yes but she's she's worried about Alexander. You know, she's worried about his emotional state now. Two of his friends have died. And uh, Hephaestus like, well, look, we're going to go into Babylon tomorrow. It's going to cheer him up. But Barbara, knowing that Alexander is supposed to die in Babylon, is kind of like, no, no, don't do that. <laughs> um, and he's like, well, we're going to go because Alexander wants to do it. And Alexander gets what he wants. So, And this yeah. is the dangers of just hanging out. And this is why this couldn't have been an episode, man. Not even an arc. They've been hanging out here for well over a week. And Barbara's just getting too emotionally attached. Yeah. Well, again, it's kind of a weird story, also, but I kind of get it with Marco Polo being his only context for what they're going to do with historical stories because they spent months with Marco Polo. Yeah, it may have also been one of the reasons I wasn't fond of that arc. Okay. So yeah, it's almost like he's like, oh, this is what we do with this. We make it about like a famous, you know, historical person. And then like they spend a bunch of time with them. And so that's this. Now it's a famous historical person, Alexander the Great. And we're going to spend a lot of time with him. Now, obviously, I think that what he's doing with the story is very different than Marco Polo. And certainly Alexander is set up as someone who's a lot more likable than Marco was, who was more seen as like an antagonist for a lot of that story of where he was the thing that was keeping them from the TARDIS. I think that's part of why this is the way it is is it's like they needed more stories to show we can do all sorts of stuff with history it doesn't have to fall into like sort of a set trope so now antipater's asking seleucus again if he'll join sorry i keep hesitating on his name i've always pronounced it seleucus because it's a c you know it's a Mm -hmm. hard c apparently it's a hard c and i didn't realize that i've never heard it said i've only ever read the name and so i always want to say seleucus but they're saying seleucus in the story which is probably actually accurate Because they say in the extras that there was a lot of debate and they had to actually research how to pronounce the names because... That's really awesome, though, if they did that. No, But yeah, Seleucus Seleucus is still not ready to join them. And then I was just like, well, you just want us to do the dirty work. And Seleucus basically says, well, you guys keep planning these things, but then they don't go the way that you want them to. So even though you succeeded in killing these people, neither one was the way you thought it would go. So I'm still not... I still don't think that you guys know what you're doing right yeah but antipater says well we need you for uh for feiston and alexander and i'm still unclear on why because as we actually get to that part of the story seleucus does diddly really (laughs) it's true maybe he's just trying to push him into saying that he would join them but seleucus is like well i could always just accuse you guys and they're like two people are already dead if you accuse us now we're gonna be like you were part of it too and alexander will be like why didn't you tell me earlier you know (laughs) and he'll get mad so yeah at this point it's kind of like he's stuck because you know he knew too much and never and didn't warn about the other two deaths yeah yeah so he agrees to join them and antipater is like all right so sign this contract that i've already drawn up Let's have a let's have a written record of it all. <laughs> right. Which basically like he owes them money. So when he becomes king, he'll be able to pay them that money because that's what they really care I, I'm about. I was going to point out that these are a bunch of treasonous, treasonous snakes and backstabbing. And they think that, oh, no, but it's cool. You signed a contract. We all agree to uphold that. <laughs> yeah i'm like what's to stop him when he becomes king of like ordering like all three of you being beheaded i mean it's right? just like 
kill him. So now we skip forward again. It's another week. The doctor has extracted the heavy hydrogen. He's uh, repaired the TARDIS and he says, we're ready to leave as soon as, you know, we want to. Mm -hmm. He said he's talked to Hephaestus so he knows, you know, that they're leaving and Susan is excited because they'll be able to say proper goodbyes to everybody. But Barbara is still worried like about what's going to happen and, and how close they are to it. Yeah. Then we go to Alexander talking with Hephaestus and Hephaestus asking, are we ever going to see Macedon again? And Alexander says, I would love to go back, but until I've united the world, like I can't go back. He talks about like his dream of uniting the world and everybody in one uber culture, like one just human culture. And Hephaestus like, well, what happens if you die before you can do that? And Alexander says, well, you'll carry on my work. And then Hephaestus like, what if we both die? And he's like, well, hopefully people will just remember how good it was and they'll just keep doing it on their own. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to break it to you, man. <laughs> right. I mean, even he says, like, like, even he's like, clearly not like, he's just like, hopefully, but you know, I know that he, you know, I don't think he thought that that was likely, but at the same time, he, you know, he talks about this dream a couple more times later, but like this idea of, you know, this was the thing that, that he thought was beneficial to everybody is like, no more wars, just unite everybody, you know? Yeah, it's true. It would be great, but yeah, yeah. no. Of course, he does that by conquering those places and forcing them to do it at first. But he's like, hey, once you do it for a while, then you'll just naturally want to do it. So it's great. Yeah. So again, it's it's a very, a very interesting character just because of the dichotomy. So yeah, the TARDIS crew walk with Alexander through the gate into Babylon, but Iolus is there and he tells Alexander, oh, great disaster if you actually enter the city. And Alexander is like, just move. <laughs> get away and Iolus goes to Antipater and asks how Hephaestus will die and Antipater says he'll die a woman's death oh my god <laughs> and when they revealed what because at first I'm like a woman's death what would be a woman's death how do you differentiate that and like what they said is a woman's death was kind of like oh I mean I get the illusion there but it's kind of like um okay yeah <laughs> So then the TARDIS crew, they tell Alexander, because he's on his throne actually in Babylon, and they say, we're leaving now, and we're sad to go, but he tells them, look, you can't go yet. You know, Hephaestus and I have already talked. He's going to go get gifts for you guys. I want you to have these gifts before you go. And Barbara's like, well, we should give you gifts then too. And so they each give him something that they have on, which again, is another one of those things. It's like, we can't change history, but here, like, you know, like Barbara gives him a plastic bracelet. Ian gives him a fountain pen. <laughs> the doctor gives him a compass and Susan gives him a kiss because that's she doesn't have anything to actually give him. So she gives him a kiss. But it's like, yeah, like the fountain pen, the compass, you know, like oh all that. Like, it's, like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, that won't mess with anything. That won't change anything. Just leave those there. Oh my god. Oh, and I did skip. Like at first he's like, Look, I'm a king. I've got everything. You guys don't have to give oh, me but gifts. You but... don't have this. Right, exactly. But they're like, look, it's about the spirit that it's given, and you know, like we want to give you something. And so they each give him like something that they have. But then like it seems like a long time, and, and Alexander is like, Why hasn't a Feiston come back yet? And so he just tells them, All right, well, go. He calls it their laboratory, basically the TARDIS. Go to your laboratory and we'll join you there once a Feiston comes back. Yes. And then they show what's going on with Hephaestus he's walking through the hanging gardens you know he's taking his time mm -hmm. then Glaucus Iolus and Antipater basically 
basically jump him and they hit his skull with the hilt of a sword and so he gets knocked out and when he's dragged off to this place that they have that's near the hanging gardens they put a snake on him because the idea is because there are various historical figures that were women that killed themselves by being bitten by a snake it's like that's a woman's death it's so so weird yeah it's a weird way to describe it but anyway either way it's a venomous snake so i mean it's like it's going to kill him and so yeah like he tries to he wakes up and this thing is on him and you know he so he tries i mean might as well try he tries to like swat it off but because he tries to swat it off it bites him but then since it's already bit him he like crushes its skull with his hand Mm -hmm. but the poison starts doing its work but not fast enough right because what happens is once he sees who the conspirators are he understands that okay if they've killed Clytus and Calanus, they're killing me alexander's next ptolemy right yeah well well no like hephaestan's the last one who's actually in the order of succession like ptolemy is a friend just a friend right but they tell him that oh we have this other medallion and seleucus is going to take the throne so he realizes this is a really big you know danger to alexander and so he gets up basically the last of his strength grabs his sword from glaucus kills glaucus and he runs off. There's a struggle with Antipater at one point and the belt breaks. That'll become important later. But basically he runs off. But as he gets to the Hanging Gardens, like the poison starts really affecting him and he's not able to run anymore. So he just starts crawling through the gardens while everybody's waiting at the TARDIS, you know, Ian and Barbara, Susan and the Doctor. You know, he basically like crawls out of the, like the clearing into the clearing where the TARDIS is or whatever. And he's trying to tell them what, you know, what's happening, but he can't, they can't, make out his words and all that they he says something and i forget what it was i don't remember yeah he says something but it's it's very minimal it's not anything that really indicates what's going on i think he says something like warn alexander but he doesn't tell them what to warn him about because like ian's trying to suck the poison out which nowadays we know you don't do that but (laughs) (laughs) but it is one of those things that they used to teach people for first aid was like if somebody's bitten by a snake try to like you know suck on the wound and spit it out nowadays they say don't do that but of course while they're doing this while they're trying to save hephaestin while they're trying to do all of this it's always the way at any of these shows like alexander comes in they see dead hephaestin they see them over dead hephaestin and it says like he like basically like can't process like what what he's seeing like he he looks like kind of like confused and just sort of stares off just because it's such a shock to him and he cries in anguish but then iolas being the stupidest guy in this whole story comes out of the clearing and he's like Oh, oh, because, uh, yeah, well, the thing that when Alexander's crying, he says, what God has done this? And I always walked out and then he's like, well, I always is the one that's been saying this is going to happen. It's his fault. And he kills him. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Yeah, but then Seleucus and Antipater come out and they're like, look, man, you, you did Iolus wrong because the strangers are the ones that killed him. And the doctor says, hey, we had nothing to do with this. But Alexander, because they're standing over them, I guess, is convinced enough that he's like, all right, guards arrest them. And he says that he'll send them to Hades in such a manner that it'll offend the heavens. Oh, I mean, it's a great line, but... Right. <laughs> And then we have our cliffhanger because we have to have an overblown statement before our cliffhanger. I mean, all we need is for him to put on sunglasses as he says it. And then you get the who in the background going. "Ah!" (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. Very much a CSI Miami fan. 
Oh, okay. But yeah, this next episode is the other thing that I really wish if they could have just made it. I, w- I want to see this next episode because this is like to me like the highlight of this of this whole storyline. And it's episode five. It's called In the Arena. And so they're like in a dungeon area. Ian's like, how, I wonder how we're going to die. The doctor's like, don't worry. If we just think about this, we'll find a way out. But Susan's pretty confident because like, oh, well, Alexander's bound to find out we didn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) But then Ptolemy comes and he takes them and uh, goes to Alexander's throne room. And at first, Alexander wants everybody to leave, but Antipater is worried about what they're going to say to Alexander. So he's like, look, this is their trial, right? There should be people present at the trial. And so Alexander's like, fine, like Antipater, Seleucus, and Ptolemy, you stay, everybody else go. But yeah, so Alexander at first, though, was like, I'm not really worried about two women, an old man, and a scientist, but Antipater convinces him to let them stay. (laughs) So yeah, Alexander says that they betrayed his friendship, and Ian's like, no, we haven't, because we're innocent. Right? And Ian's basically like, look, if you have us put to death one day, you'll find out that it wasn't us, and then you'll be, you know, you'll regret what you're doing here. And Alexander says, well, can you prove your innocence? And the doctor says, can you disprove it? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Arguments that just sit around today. Right. Well, because, yeah, I mean, the doctor is coming from the, you know, the innocent until proven guilty, you know, mindset. But it's like, yeah, in historical times, that was not the case in most places and times that is a much more modern concept of justice right and so antipater you know throws out all the circumstantial evidence you were standing over hephaestan three of alexander's friends have died since you showed up and they were there when clitus fell on the sword he's like the doctor was sitting really close to clitus how do we know something didn't happen there you were just so close (laughs) right And that Kalanis uh, had been sick before with something that had similar symptoms to what he had had there. And it's like, and he got better. But Kalanis only chose to die after the doctor got involved. And so he's basically trying to throw all this stuff out to make them seem suspicious. Which it kind of does. Well, it does, except that the doctor brings out the best point that he can bring out without hard evidence. And he says, what do we have to gain? Exactly. There's literally nothing for them. Right. Because he's like, "Um, we're here. We have the protection of the king. Why would we screw that by, like, killing off his friends? Not to mention, we all just met. Right. And Antipater's like, well, you're in the service of an evil god. That's just, like, the thing that you throw out in history or something on on a weird place planet just blame an evil god well sometimes it's actually true if you're wesley crusher and you can't keep off the grass well, oh god <laughs> i hate that episode so everyone much. hates that episode <laughs> what was it called justice justice right yep. oh on the planet of the edo That's- why do i even remember that those outfits the hair <laughs> everything about it i'm oh, sorry tangent yeah <laughs> But yeah, and Susan also mentions like, look, we were in the process of saving Kalanis and we were basically told we couldn't do it anymore. Like we would have saved him. And why would we have done that if we were the ones that poisoned him? Mm -hmm. So Alexander is basically like, okay, you're both making really good arguments. So here's the compromise. I'll only kill one of you. (laughs) (laughs) And so he's like, Ian, sorry, but you know, you're going to have to die. And Barbara and Susan, and you know, they're all kind of arguing like, you know, don't do this. Like Barbara's like, I'll go instead. Or, you know, if you kill Ian, you have to kill me too. And Susan's like, all of us will die for Ian, even grandfather. And the doctor's like, whoa, wait, whoa, uh, 
One moment. I mean, I like Chester Field, Chesterton, Chester, whatever his name is. Not that much. Right. That was a cute moment, I thought, because that's very much like the doctor's like, you know, yeah, I mean, like, I think this is wrong, but man, I don't know that I would go at his place. I mean, for the record, the the audio, the voice acting on that part was very cute. Yeah, yeah. I, William Russell does such a fantastic doctor. Because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, because he's aged, his voice has naturally become more like William Hartnell's voice as it's gotten older. But he also does, like, you know, he also does, like, more of a voice to make him sound more like him. But I do like, I mean, he's obviously a different person. Like, they don't sound like, it's not like, oh, my God, it sounds like the same person. But there's enough there that you can tell that it's from his association with him from working with him over, you know, a good long period that there's like some respect there. And he's like, I'm going to like try to embody him as much as I can through my performance. And and I like that. It worked out well. Yeah. And I feel the same thing from um, Carolyn Ford doing Barbara mm-hmm. also that I feel like she does a fairly good Barbara. I can close my eyes and sort of feel like it's Barbara. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, basically, Alexander lets them go on about this for a while. And he's just basically like, look, you guys have passed the test. The qualities I value are our courage, wisdom, and love. And like they've demonstrated all of those qualities. And so he's like, I don't believe that you did this. But Alexander's basically like, but look, there's Iola's prophecy. My people are superstitious. We still need to do something about that. So what we'll do, because it's customary with the Macedonians that you like prove yourself by participating in some sort of a contest. And in that way, like, you know, the gods will choose you as the victor if you're like truly righteous or whatever. And so he's telling the doctor he's going to walk through fire. Mm hmm. And Ian can pick any one of 10 games that they have going to compete in. I love that Ian is very confident about this. And everybody else is like, are you are you sure about this, Ian? I mean, you, you went for wrestling really quickly. Right. Are you really sure? Because we don't have the most confidence in you. Right. Because it's stuff like discus, archery, like, you know, uh, sword combat, you know, a lot of those kinds of sports, the marathon, things like that. But it's, yeah, Ian's like, no, I'll, I'll go with wrestling. And yeah, everyone's trying to get because like even Alexander's like, look, I've got men who are like twice your size. Just mm-hmm. imagine, you know, soldiers, they've been fighting for 13 years, probably really muscled, big, bulky guys. <laughs> you know, Ian, even though he's not the shortest person in the world, isn't like a big, bulky guy at all. He's very slim. Everybody just keeps trying to talk him out of it. Right. <laughs> and this is the part. I would love to have seen that the wrestling actually on television mm-hmm. i know it probably isn't as good as they describe it in the audio but i i just would love to see this actually done because i totally i totally get it because it's like so back in those days right after world war ii people still had to do what they called national service which was like you know young men once they reached an i don't remember if it was 16 or 18 they basically had to do military service for a few years so ian was the right age that he would have done military service even if he actually wasn't in world war ii mm-hmm. and so the idea that he's probably been to another country you know some base that the british had somewhere is a fairly high likelihood and you know he's learned aikido or something you know like a lot of the things that they were describing like the using the weight and momentum of your opponent against them it's like an aikido type thing so Mm -hmm. yeah i i just i just would have loved to have seen that but yeah they're they have some time before this starts and so they're in their tent and the doctor says that antipater's the real bad guy you know he says like he 
he already thought that they were the ones who pushed Clytus. He knows that Kalanis died from anthrax poisoning. Mm-hmm. And since nobody else has gotten it, that was deliberate. And Hephaestus was trying to warn Alexander about something. And then they just showed up. Like, you know, they were like the next people on the scene after Alexander. And so it's like, I you mean, know, it seems really suspicious. Antipater's been the one pushing for this, you mm-hmm. know, a lot. Right. And so Barbara's like, look, this is the year 323 BC. Like, I've worked it out. And Alexander is going to die soon. So then we go to the games you know they, they're preparing the bed of coals and the doctor is taking off his shoes and socks and is just basically like rubbing his feet in the sand he's like, shuffling right <laughs> And so, but he seems happy. Like everybody, like, like everybody else is terrified. It's like, God, maybe we should talk to Alexander one more time. Why you conv- convince him not to have you do this? And he's like, oh, pff, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. You know, and he's really happy about it. And the, you know, Alexander comes and he says, uh, are you prepared for your ordeal? And he says, yes. And so, you know, they light the coals on fire. And, you know, the whole time, even while the doctor's talking to Alexander, they keep mentioning he's just shuffling his feet on the ground. And so he goes, and he walks over the coals and he's perfectly fine and then mm-hmm. he turns around and walks back the other way <laughs> just to show off right i love that because again i can totally see him doing this and it talks about him doing like waves as he's doing it and in the end after he's gone back and forth a few times he takes a bow and everything and it's like the delight and the theatricality of it i can just it's, totally see this it's totally the doctor i can right. totally see it yeah and so yeah i mean basically what it is is what he's done is he's made his feet sweat and it creates like a layer between the fire and his feet and as long as you do it fast enough you know you can walk through then you make sure you make your feet sweat a little more you can walk back the other way and you're perfectly fine so now we get to the wrestling part and like we kind of mentioned already ian is just like amazing at this because you know there are these bigger guys that are coming at him but he does the things like you know he crouches down low and as the person like sort of lunges at him he stands up and kind of like pushes them over his shoulder and you know stuff like that to get him to land on the ground because like the rules are basically like if your back or your shoulders touch the ground you're out and there, there was a little more to it than that but it was basically mm-hmm. like, it's not like you have to pin them completely to the ground even if you just knock them you know on their backs mm-hmm. it's considered you know basically that they're out and so the idea is there's two groups and each of these groups wrestles amongst themselves one at a time. It's kind of free form, though. It's not like they match people up one to one. It's basically like you look around for somebody who's free and you go wrestle them. And until one person is left on each team and then basically the semifinalists who won each team, then they go at each other. Right. So after all this happens, it's Ian on the one team and Seleucus on the other team. We know this isn't going to be good. Right. And so Lucas tells Ian that this is where his neck gets broken. Ian's not too worried. Not not too worried. I'll take the wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> Oh and, and the best part about that, like it, when everybody's convincing him it's, or trying to convince him, is it's like he's so deadpan about it. I'll take the wrestling. Like, not like enthusiastic, mm-hmm. not like anything. It's just kind of like, I'll, I'll take the wrestling. Very nonchalant. Right. <laughs> but yeah, that brings us to our final episode, which is farewell great macedon because it had to be named that right 
And yeah, I mean, obviously with the wrestling, it's like, it's not something, if you want the play-by-play, go to the audio. But basically, Ian defeats Seleucus. Seleucus is very angry, and he goes to Antipater. Antipater says that they can't use the TARDIS crew as scapegoats anymore because they've proven themselves through this, you know, trial. Yep. But Seleucus doesn't care because he's like, well, if I'm king, I can just have them killed right afterwards. So... Yeah. I don't know how I didn't have a note on this, but while Alexander was watching the games, Antipater's been poisoning him. He's been pouring stuff into his cup. Oh my gosh. And it's very obvious. I can see it in my head. Like, it's full-on cartoon. Let me turn my back. Mm -hmm. It's like something straight out of Emperor's New Groove is what I'm imagining with Kronk trying to poison Cusco. Yeah. This is the image in my head. Only Alexander doesn't turn into a llama. Oh, and yeah, I did skip. I did skip a few notes from episode five because, yeah, the other thing is that um, there was a bit before the game started where uh, Ptolemy comes in and says that they found Hephaestus' sword and it was covered in blood. And near where they found the sword, there was also Glaucus's body. And this is why they gave a detail early on that Hephaestus had like a curved blade, like a scimitar, which was very unusual. Like everybody else had like a normal, like Greek, you know know a straight sword mm-hmm. you know and so like they could tell from the cut on glaucus's body that it had been done with a feiston sword and that they also found antipater's belt buckle and so because of that alexander realizes that yeah since antipater's been the one that's trying so hard to blame everybody else his buckle was there he's buddies with glaucus you know like oh okay like i get what's happening here now why he let him serve him wine after that is the one thing that i have a question about because it's like i would totally have been like anybody else can serve me the wine (laughs) i have a feeling alexander was already drinking before antipater started serving him so we know that alexander doesn't hold his drink so well yeah and i figure he's probably not even thinking about that at this point yeah he's just got other things on his mind including the fact that he realizes that plus i don't think he'd think that that's poison you know poison's a woman's way of killing somebody not honorable and I'm, i think he wants to give antipater more credit than he deserves well, that could well be and i mean and I, man it's just like an easy thing to do is protect yourself from the guy that you already but like alexander wants to make him wait it like he wants him to see because he's fairly convinced that the doctor and ian are gonna pull it off and mm-hmm. so he kind of wants antipater to see his plan with them fail and then reveal to him like he knows you know what's up with antipater too so yeah alexander's also a guy who likes the theatricality i mean he is alexander the great yeah it's true but yeah alexander asks them to wait you know to leave like he's like look i know you wanted to leave last night and you've had to go through this stuff today but my but... wife's about to be here right. <laughs> see come on you can just wait another day to meet her right and barbara's like no no we gotta go right she's like i, I don't want to see this is actually really tragic i mean you know all the stuff that we're talking about about you know like oh giving away that like this is history to them and that they're from the future and all that like that's problematic but this idea of knowing that a tragedy is going to happen and also knowing that there's nothing you can do about it is actually really horrible and you know they don't go too deep into it but i mean you do get barbara's reactions to it and it is 
I mean, that is really, really hard. Like, you know, Caroline Ford portrays it amazingly with Barbara's voice. Like, it's gorgeous and it does make me extremely sad to listen. Yeah. Um, Yes, you definitely feel like the desire to just get out of there before it happens. But then Alexander, as he's telling them all of this, he sort of falls over and he just thinks, yeah, I've had a little too much wine. You know, like, it's okay. Uh, I just need to sleep it off. But Barbara knows, okay, this this is it. This is when it's starting. I think she even says something quietly to, to somebody in their group. I think she even says the phrase, he's dying. Mm-hmm. And it's so sad. Yeah. But then, yeah, Alexander, he wants to, you know, uh, have his confrontation with Antipater now. So he calls his generals together. He calls Antipater there. And he tells Antipater that, look, they're innocent. They've proved it through trial. But I also know because there have been other things that have come to light and he shows them the sword and the belt buckle and he says look Hephaestus' death and the death of Calanus and Clytus which were all part of this because you know these broken medallions show that somebody was just going after my successors this is treachery against the throne mm-hmm. and you know Antipater tries to speak and Alexander's having none of it but Seleucus knowing okay wait Alexander's already poisoned so I don't need to do anything else. But Antipater could still say something that would implicate me. I'm going to be like, oh my God, how dare you? And just like kill him, <laughs> which he does. I mean, it's not the worst plan. Right. I mean, yeah, for Seleucus, this is the smartest thing he can do because he's prevented Antipater from saying anything and Alexander is going to die anyway. And so as that happens, though, Alexander collapses and Ptolemy is the only one who notices at first. And he goes and he calls one of the other generals over and they move Alexander to his room. And Ptolemy goes to find Ian, Barbara, Susan, and the doctor. But yeah, so they come, like the doctor looks at Alexander while the the others are standing outside. And Barbara tells them, look, this is the day that Alexander is supposed to die. Now, I, I did actually research this. We don't know with 100% certainty that he died on the 13th of June, but it is one of the dates that historians have suggested. And the other ones are earlier. So the fact that, you know, if you've gotten past to those other dates, <laughs> you know, Oh, and the 13th second. of June is the last one. So when did the Julian calendar have come into play? I'm now I'm wondering, like, is this based on which calendar? I'm not sure exactly why there's a discrepancy on when he actually died. But I do know that it, it, everyone agrees it was June. I right. mean, as far as like what corresponds to June in our calendars now. But yeah, like it's like some people say it was June 9th and some say it was June 13th. But anyway, either way. It's June 13th. So uh, Barbara's like this, you know, because of what's happening and the fact that it is one of the dates that uh, has been suggested for his death, that she knows that this is this is starting the process. But Ian doesn't want to believe it. And Susan's basically like, well, you can't change history. You know, like, it's just impossible. Like, history will correct itself. But Ian's basically arguing, like, look, if Alexander can live, then the whole world can be united. It's like, all right, come on. First of all, Alexander didn't have the technology and everything to get across the whole world within his lifetime and conquer all of it, okay? Second of all, even if he did, on his death, like, it wouldn't last, (laughs) It's such a simplistic view, Ian. Right. Uh, yeah, I do feel like some of the script suffers from not having having gone through rewrites because not to mention, you know. I mean, think about it. You think about it. you change this one thing, and Ian, do you even exist at that point, Ian? Right. Do you just blink out? Right. No, it's it's really problematic. And yeah, I mean, part of the problem is the script didn't go through re like all the ones we've seen 
have gone through rewrites because no script comes in and is like perfect from like the beginning. And one of the things that they rewrite is character stuff. Because at this point, when the characters were brand new, having David Whitaker as the person who would see the scripts and be like, oh, well, we need to rewrite this because this is not what this character would do and stuff like that. You need that sort of oversight to create the consistency within the series. This didn't yeah. have that. And like, this is out of character for Ian. And we've already talked about some other things that seem out of character for, for some other characters too. And yeah, I really wish this had gotten more polish on it because not just for the things that were like, well, it's even weird for them to like even try to change history after the Aztecs but for some of the character stuff I would have liked to have seen like get straight now I think this is a good nugget of a story that could have been turned into one they did on television mm -hmm. with some changes but yeah like how, how it is especially with how we're about to like go with this story in the rest of this episode it's like no this feels so wrong so they're called into the room with Alexander and the doctor asks Ian if he knows how to build an iron lung yeah yeah I couldn't even believe that I heard that. Right. So they're going to build an iron lung with just stuff that they find lying around in the fourth century BC. Why not? Because, yeah, like the, the poisons causing Alexander's lungs to seize up, basically, so he can't breathe. Right? Yeah. So, like, if they can, like, force his lungs to work, then they can keep him alive. And then, like, the doctor says that he was once a medical student, even though he didn't take it all the way. Like, he took the Hippocratic Oath. And again, it's like, this writer clearly believes the doctor is just, like, a normal human. You know, like... Yeah, he's from... not from a different planet or anything. <laughs> right, exactly. So that's another one of those things that I would have cut, because it's an easy enough thing to cut but yeah this whole iron lung business is like yeah this should not have been how this episode ends because this would have felt so rough. so just imagine if this story had gone in the slot that the reign of terror went into instead of reign of terror we got this and then after two stories after the aztecs we're talking about trying to save alexander the great with an iron lung no <laughs> no yes so yes, I, I imagine this is one of the things that they wanted rewrites on is the, the ending had to be different. Yeah. So they're, they're, they talk about it. The Doctor and Ian talk about the principles involved. And so Ian goes off to like actually get the thing made. And Alexander wakes up and he says he feels like his life is draining away. And the Doctor says like, look, I'll build this machine. It'll allow you to live. And, and Alexander says, well, I do want to live because my dream isn't finished. But then again, they mention about being from the future and yeah. And he asks, like, does my dream succeed? And then it's basically like uh, sometime far in the future, people will be united, but not now. And so it's like, you've just told him his dream. The one thing he said, the one thing he had to live for. <laughs> You're just like, nah, you know, like, it's not going to happen. You're not going to do it. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And so, of course, like later, he's like, uh, I'm done. I, I don't want to go through this if I'm not able to, you know, do what I want to do. But like Ian arrives with the iron lung. So Lucas tries to block him because, of course, so Lucas is like, I'm about to be king. I'm about to be king. This is great. And it's like, no, yeah. no, no, don't save him. Uh, but Alexander says it's fine. Like, I don't want to use the thing anyway. And I have nothing left to live for, which does seem awesome. Awful when he's got a wife and a kid you know like a I pregnant know. wife on top of everything you know and again like like his actual death wasn't overblown like this in fact people didn't even know what he was dying from he didn't know what he was right. like some people think he was just in a coma 
And then because, because nobody was able to feed him, he eventually just died. Because they say that, like, his body didn't decay like a normal, you know, like a body would, like, you know, after, you know, like a few days. Like, his, act- his body actually stayed pristine for a while. Mm-hmm. Now, that could just be, like, people making up a story, like, trying to, like, make Alexander seem like, you know, he is more than a man or whatever. But it could have actually been true. It could have been that this he wasn't dead yet, and they just didn't know how to check vital signs back then. They didn't know about checking for pulses and things like that. So if he wasn't up and moving around and they couldn't wake him, mm-hmm. and in their minds, he was dead. And so that's kind of horrifying to think about that, you know. <laughs> You know, in like the 1800s, some people would have like bells attached to like the um the, the yeah, gravestone. So that way if they were buried alive, you can just like ding, 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 ding. Right, because it was a thing it. that happened. Sometimes people were actually buried when they weren't dead. Yeah, no, that's not terrifying. There are reasons I want a Jedi funeral. You just put my body on that pyre and light it. <laughs> so yeah, when the Doctor and Ian are still arguing about Alexander's like, just destroy the thing. So they smash up the iron lung. So there's no way to uh, to help him out. And so then, yeah, Alexander wants to have, like, basically, like, one last thing where, like, he says hi to everybody. So he has all, like, his generals come by and he, you know, like, says, you know, his, like, well wishes for them all as they come by. And that was a thing. I don't know if he actually had the energy to say anything. I read some accounts. He was just, you know, the energy to be able to, like, maybe wave. Yeah. But they he, they did all come and see him. Right. This writer obviously is in love with with Alexander the Great. Like, the concept <laughs> of Alexander, the, the figure of of history with all the myths and everything attached to him this larger than life man you know whether the true alexander was like this or not it's clear that morris fari is like just in love with this idea of alexander the great and he's trying to make it as emotional a story and as make him appear as awesome of a person as he can so even at his end he's thinking about oh i i need to you know have this emotional connection with my people and and tell them you you know, like my well wishes for them and stuff like that. Instead of being Doctor Who fan fiction, <laughs> this was Alexander the Great fan fiction. It feels like that. It feels like that. That's actually one of my criticisms of this story is it doesn't even seem to be about the Doctor and everybody. It seems to be more about Alexander than that. Like, they're barely in danger in this story. Like, usually, like, it's the danger to the threats to them that are the things that, like, drive, like, action forward. But instead, in this story, it's all about the plot against Alexander the Great. Any, like, threats to them are either really short-lived or they're only sort of, like, theoretical danger like if alexander dies then maybe they're in danger too but you know not not really anything really immediate right and so yeah i mean everybody's saying goodbye to him it's he's he's showing that thing i talked about where he knows everybody he knows things about them and their families and everything and so showing that he takes personal interest in the people under they're not just pawns on a chessboard that he moves around roxanne shows up as this is going on and of course horrified uh that her husband is dying as she arrives (laughs) and she goes up and she's upset and she says who's going to rule the world when when you go and he says the best man oh and then he dies it's just so sad yeah and so you have a room full of generals and it's like the best man will succeed alexander and so they all start arguing I'm the best man, you know, I am. And so Lucas brings up his fake medallion, uh, you know, ah, I see Alexander, you know, knew I should be the one. And so he uses that. And uh, 
Yeah, you know, but Ptolemy, knowing that this is going to get ugly, mm-hmm. basically like pushes them, you know, the third screw out. It's like, guys, just go now. Yeah, but then he says something, he asks something, and they respond once again, indicating they are from the future and they know what's about to happen. Yeah, no, Barbara tells him that he'll be like the beginning of a dynasty that like, you know, goes on for centuries. That's it. Yeah, because yeah, he tells them, because they ask him, like, what are you going to do? And he says he's going to go back to Egypt uh, and Alexandria there because it's like the most beautiful city Alexander created and that he was going to make like have them build a library that will be like the finest library in the world so there we have Mm -hmm. the library of Alexandria and so yeah Barbara tells him he'll succeed and that he'll be like the beginning of a dynasty that like goes on it's cool we're not gonna tell him what happens to the library right well, the library had a good run. I mean, it lasted for hundreds of years. So it's not like it's like, oh, like, yeah, it was built. And then a few years later, it burned. I mean, in history, Seleucus and Tom, like Alexander's whole empire fragmented because like these generals did. They fought amongst themselves. They all like stuck out a claim to different portions of it. But Seleucus and Ptolemy basically had like the ones that in the end, after the battles that happened right after Alexander died, they had like sort of like the bigger chunks. Seleucus took over a lot of like, the former Persian area and Ptolemy had Egypt and some of the area around Egypt and theirs were the two that basically lasted the longest. So that's why their characters in this, I think, is because they're the ones that historically had, you know, the most influence after Alexander died. Then they leave and that's the end of the story. So yeah, like Juliet, what are your what are your sort of final thoughts on Farewell Great Macedon? For the most part, I enjoyed it. I felt like it dragged more than it needed to, much in the same way that I felt like Marco Polo did. Mm. I enjoyed the descriptions of things. I thought that this did not feel nearly as jolting between dialogue and action as much as that fragile yellow arc of fragrance did. Mm-hmm. It still did it, and I still didn't like it. But at least the story itself was good enough that I could, you know, try to ignore it. But it wasn't terrible. I would have enjoyed seeing it as a as an arc, maybe not nearly as long as the audio was. <laughs> Thank goodness for show don't tell. But no, it wasn't bad. I I didn't hate it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you know, there are some things working against it, but there are some things working for it because it's definitely longer because they have to read descriptions, which in the show you would just see things. But at the same time, because they're reading descriptions that you can then imagine in your mind, it looks a lot better than it ever would have on TV and the little studios that they had to work with. So, uh, so in some ways, I think it does actually work in its favor to let your imagination do the, the heavy lifting for you. John Dorney is amazing as Alexander the Great. The performance is, I don't want to say 90%, but it's like 75% of the story is just how good he is. And because it is a story that is so Alexander-centric, it was really, really important that they nail that casting. And they did a really good job of that. I'm just going to say that if we listen to any more Doctor Who things from this company, I really hope he's involved because he was just really good. Yeah. Well, it's funny. They mentioned that the line that he had had to say on the other one that got him like got them interested in having him in as Alexander was I love you and they said that um, Wendy Padbury who's one of the companions who was in that story she heard that and she was like oh I say (laughs) like when she heard him (laughs) deliver it just because of how 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 you know how his voice is like I love you you know like and she was just like like she blushed and was like oh I say (laughs) I just like think that's such a cute image in my head Uh, you don't know Uh, her yet you haven't seen her on TV but she's this tiny little pixie-ish looking woman and even now that she's older because I've actually met her at Chicago Tardis 
house. She's still, mm-hmm. even though she's older, she's still a tiny pixie-ish woman. And just imagining her blushing and being like, oh my, you know, <laughs> just like that. And so we get that. The story, you know, they're the parts that feel wrong just because they don't fit in. Mm-hmm. That are that are difficult to get through because they sort of take me out. There are the parts that don't feel right from a character perspective that's a little bit harder to say for sure. Like, no, they would never do this because, you know, obviously, you know, like it's a character, right? So, you know. But, but, there... but then there are parts that are great, like the doctor mm-hmm. shuffling his feet and then walking across the fire a few times and waving to the crowd. That fifth episode is so great. I, I would have loved to have seen that. But then on the positive side, it's a really great for a story again like when they're trying to like teach as part of this for just showing like a lot of the stuff around Alexander the Great and sort of like giving you sort of a feel for like the time period and everything it's got a lot of the elements and everything and and like I say a lot of these things were true they just sort of smushed them together in time so they happened on top of each other and then just created this conspiracy which people think might have happened there might have been some kind of conspiracy but we don't know that but that's just dramatic license (laughs) So we get that. But then, yeah, I mean, it's like the fact that the main characters are never in any kind of danger, though, works against it. So mm-hmm. there, it seems like there's a lot of good. There's a lot of bad. I, I, it certainly falls more on the good side to me. But yeah, it's it's like a lot of the six parters, even in the show, though, it, it drags. Yeah. Pacing isn't there. Like, that, that should be. So, yeah, I mean, what would be your rating then, Juliet? <sighs> I'm waffling between six, six and a half. I enjoyed the story. I felt like it did have a lot working against it, but at least it's not like a three or something. So yay. No, I agree with you. I give this one a six, actually. I think that there's a lot of positive to it, but I think there's a lot of negative too. And it sort of falls out on the, uh, like I said, it falls more to the positive, but it's not like one of my very favorite stories either. If not for Alexander having such a great voice actor, that rating would have gone way way down (laughs) yeah it's important it's definitely important but i will say this i rate the next one much higher okay i wouldn't say it's a a favorite of all time but it is definitely one of the better you know stories okay yeah so yeah like i've been doing uh you know i mentioned like ways of if you want to read more about doctor who or about you know thoughts about doctor who so the one i'm going to talk about today is tardis eruditorum which is a series written by Elizabeth Sandifer. She also has a website if you Google TARDIS Eruditorum. Even spell that. <laughs> E-R-U-D-I-T-O-R-U-M. I wasn't even close. <laughs> it's basically erudite, but like, you know, uh, you know, it's a play on the word erudite. So, but it is, okay. she basically takes deep dives into all the stories, television stories, and even through modern who, but she okay. also occasionally does like the big finish audios and the novels. And we'll do some of those as well, but basically just looking at influences, like subtext, like things that you might not have thought about when you were watching or reading or listening and, and like what these things mean and like what sort of like the overall message of the story is and things like that so i don't always agree with her i think sometimes she goes off on tangents that i don't think are right and i don't think the author intended but okay it's an interesting read either way so if you really want to go like way deeper you know with analysis that is a series that you could read it sounds interesting yeah so yeah i kind of alluded to it next time we are going to do the masters of luxor okay which actually was originally supposed to be the second story after an unearthly child uh, instead of the daleks 
Oh, wow. It's actually written by the author who wrote that first story, Anthony Coburn. But because they wanted rewrites, it actually it, it fell out of the place and they moved the Daleks up. The Daleks had always been intended to be done, but it was going to be like the fifth or sixth story. And they moved mm-hmm. it up to the second story because Terry Nation had already finished work on it. Okay. And yeah, this one, it just kind of went into rewrite hell where like it kept getting rewritten and they kept submitting it and they kept asking for more rewrites to the point where it just got to a point where he just got fed up and he just stopped but yeah like there's actually from what i understand several different versions of this story that still are around this is the version i'm familiar with because it's the one big finish put out but there are if you want to look for them there are other versions of the story Yeah. But yeah, so it's, yeah, it's called the Masters of Luxor. It's another one with the first TARDIS crew, but the way Big Finish did it, because they did it after they did Farewell Great Macedon, they take some of the lines that would have linked it back to an unearthly child and changed it to link them back to Farewell Great Macedon instead. Uh So, so chronologically, it's like it happens right after Farewell Great Macedon. So that's why we're listening to them in this order. Okay. Yeah. So, Juliet, do you have anything that you wanted to shout out about or anything before we go? I'm just going to say I've been getting into some historical, not really historical shows, but shows based on history. Mm. And if you haven't actually sat through and watched Black Sails and Vikings, do it because darn it, I'm loving it. I'm loving it so much. Okay, yeah, it gets bogged down by politics. And as you can tell, I, I... from listening to some of these longer historical arcs of Doctor Who, I kind of get really tired when it starts dragging and I start to lose interest. But much like Doctor Who, you know, you give me a few murders and I'm good. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, yeah, I, I've got so much stuff to watch. It's not even funny. I actually had to make a list because I was forgetting all the stuff that I need to watch. And so I actually made a list of the things to watch. (laughs) So that's how bad it's gotten. Oh my gosh. My current lists are things I have to sing for karaoke for my Patreon. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) How's that going? I have three Patreon subscribers. (laughs) But hey, I've got three people who are paying to hear me make videos and sing karaoke in my car. I'm not going to complain. That's awesome. It's good. I mean, man, you're getting paid to do something that you like. I mean, like... I'm saving up for recording equipment and software. That's what this whole thing is for. All right, cool. Yeah. But yeah, you can't knock being paid to do something that you enjoy doing. Because let me tell you, the things I get paid for are not things that I enjoy doing. (laughs) The things that I enjoy, I'm doing for free. (laughs) Yes, that's normally how it goes. All right, but yeah, like I said, it's it's uh, Masters of Luxor next time, and so now it's time to close out. So I'm Nathan. And I'm Juliet. And we'll catch you next time. Bye! You've been listening to Time Streams, a subsidiary of the 42Cast podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, email us at everything at 42cast.com. Beginning music is Vortex, followed by Pulse Rock, both by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution License. Ending music is Voltaic, also by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution License.